The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. supposed to be this morning. Um, In Hebrews chapter 2, we make a shift from what we have been talking about to um, a command. And as I was working through the first section of Hebrews chapter 2 this week, I, I, I was drawn back to Luke 18, and I wanted to sort of use that as the introduction uh, to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And as I began to work through it, I realized that my introduction then was going to be more than half of the sermon. And so I said, well, forget that. Uh, we're just going to do Luke 18 this morning by itself and use it sort of to set the stage and the backdrop for Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Uh, we need to see the, the distinct difference between the law and the gospel. We need to see a distinct difference between the old covenant and the new covenant in order to really grasp and catch the full weight of what the author of Hebrews is telling us. And so... Uh, I want us to go back to Luke chapter 18, to a parable that Jesus spoke, uh, because in very vivid imagery, it paints for us the contrast that we need to capture and we need to have sort of in the backdrop of our minds as we move our way into Hebrews chapter 2. So if you would indulge me this morning, uh, let's look at uh, this parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 and following. Uh, If we can put the the text on the screen, that would be great. Uh, In my notes and in my Bible, I have the ESV, but I want to, uh, if I can read it fully, uh, use the New American Standard for uh, translation for uh, this particular text. And uh, it's on the screen instead of in front of me. So follow along in your Bible if you have it or on the screen as we listen to Jesus tell this wonderful parable. He says, To some who were confident in their own righteousness... And looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. got to work with me here. Get to the next one. There we go. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this parable is vivid. It is stunning. And in fact, would have arrested the consciousness of the the original audience that would have heard it. They would have been in stunned disbelief at your story. I pray that we, even though we are separated by centuries of time, And we are separated by a cultural context that's very different from the one in which you spoke this originally. That you would help us, Lord, just to capture some sense for the stunning nature of what you say in this story. That we might fully and completely grasp what it means to know the gospel, to believe the gospel, and to be saved. May that be the result of our time together today. For your glory and for your sake, we pray. Amen. Listen, there are basically three kinds of people in the world. Basically three categories of people. There are those in general who reject God. People who just reject the whole concept, the whole idea of God. Atheists, agnostics, uh, 
any other terminology you want to place on that particular category, we're surrounded by a world in which there's a significant portion of the population which outright rejects any concept of God. Their basic premise of life is there is no God. God isn't real. God isn't there. He doesn't exist. I have no reason to think about Him. I have no reason to relate to Him. I have no reason to ponder Him. I have no reason to even give any attention whatsoever to any concept of God. I am alive. This world that I see, feel, touch, smell, hear is all that there is. That describes a significant portion of the population around us. Within the subset of people who who reject that notion but say that there is a God, there are really two other categories of people there. There are those who recognize that there is a God and that in some way, shape, or form we have to do something to relate rightly to Him. But in their concept is in order to relate rightly to Him and to be made right with Him, we have to do something to earn His favor. That there are some activities, some actions, some things we must do, some rules we must obey, some things we must avoid in order to be made right with Him. And at the end of the day, when our, when our life on earth is done and we stand before Him, the, the question is really going to be, have we done enough what is right and have we avoided enough of what is wrong to be welcomed into His kingdom? And then there's a third category of people. And that's the category of people who realize there's absolutely nothing that we can do to earn our way into the kingdom of God. That there is absolutely no amount of good works, there is no amount of religiousness or religiosity that we can display in our life that would ever overcome the mountain of guilt from our sin and allow us entrance into the kingdom of God. So you have those who reject the concept of God altogether outright. You have those who uh, sort of admit that there is a God, but believe the way to be right with Him is to do certain things through your works will get you in or keep you out. And there are those in the third category who say there are no amount of works. My only hope is that God would be gracious to me and grant to me what I do not deserve and what I cannot earn by my works. Every human being fits into one of those three categories as far as their relationship with God or their perspective on God goes. Everyone in this room fits into one of those categories. And there are really two broad categories of religions in the world. Those who are, who are directed toward that second category, those who are built around some sense, some sort of a works righteousness. They're, they're built around some premise that if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll be made right with God. Name the religion, and there are multitudes of them out there that are that way. But built around the premise that if you do certain things, your works, if you do the right works, you will get into the kingdom of God and be made right with Him. And then there is the gospel, the true gospel, that forms the heart of the Christian faith, that is a gospel of grace. It is built around the concept that we cannot earn our way into God's pleasure. We cannot earn our way out of our sin. We cannot work our way into the kingdom of God by being good or by being righteous or being religious. And every religion falls into one of those three categories. And there's only one way to be made right in the end. And it is to this end that Jesus tells this story. Now, the story is a parable, and we're not currently studying parables, so just to give you a sense for what a parable is, a parable is simply a fictional short story, uses familiar everyday objects or relationships to explain spiritual truths. Very easy. It's just a story, a fictional story with fictional characters that's meant to make a point, usually one particular point, and the point is always related to the kingdom of God or what it means to be a Christian. When we hear Jesus speaking the parables about the kingdom, He's talking about what it takes to get into the kingdom, what it means to be a Christian. So the parables really are Jesus' way of t- using story form to explain to us what it means to be a Christian and how to get into the kingdom. And that's what we find ourselves looking at in Luke chapter 18. Now parables in their original context were rather fascinating because they were really intended to do two things. Parables were intended to both conceal and to reveal. 
Uh, we don't have time to work through it, but uh, if you were to look into Luke, uh, uh, Luke's gospel, you would find that the disciples come alongside Jesus and they ask him at some point, why do you speak in, in gospel in these parables? Why do you tell these stories? And Jesus tells them, essentially, I do it in order to conceal and to reveal. And he says that when I tell these stories, they're intended to conceal the truth from a certain portion of the population, and they're intended to then reveal the truth to another portion of the population. You see, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's been traveling and he's been sharing the truth of the gospel, what, who he is, the Son of God, come from heaven, and what he's come to do to deliver men from their sins by the giving of his life, that he is the Messiah who's come to save them. And what has happened largely in Israel is the Israelites... The people of God have rejected the message, and they have rejected the messenger. They've rejected Jesus, and they've rejected the gospel. And instead of believing and embracing him, the religious establishment has rejected him and is building in their hatred toward him and are seeking to kill him. And so Jesus switches his method to to parables. And the parables are meant to completely conceal the truth to those who have already rejected the light they've been given. And they are intended to reveal the truth to those who come seeking the truth. It's a marvelous, miraculous way, in fact, of communicating. To those who have already rejected the light that's been given, to those who have already made a decision about Christ, the parables were utterly confusing and made no sense, and they missed it altogether. To those who came honestly seeking to know who Christ was, the story was opened up to them, and their eyes were opened, and their understanding was enlightened by the Holy Spirit, and they got it. That's what these things were. And that's what they were meant to do. And that's what the story was intended to do. The parables, in general, were God's judgment on Israel. And this parable is, is, couldn't be more stunning in that message. This is a radical story. It's hard to catch it in English removed this many centuries from the original context. But if you were there, if you were there on the day in which Jesus spoke this parable, if you could have seen the faces, if you could have watched the reactions when Jesus gets to the end of this parable and lays out, that drops the hammer at the end, you would have likely seen jaws drop to the ground. You would have probably heard gasps in the crowd. They would have never seen it coming. And it couldn't have been more stunning. So we work our way through it this morning. And I hope that it captures you that way as well. Because the message is critical to your eternal salvation. It's critical to you understanding the difference between the gospel and the law. The New Testament, the New Covenant, and the Old Covenant. And what it means truly to be saved. So walk with me as we walk with Jesus through this story. It's a really simple story on the surface. It involves two people who are sort of the focus of the story, the players, if you will. And then Jesus describes for us these two players going to the temple, and he's going to give us sort of their positions in the temple when they get there. And at the end of the day, they're both people who pray, and so we're going to see their prayers And as Jesus describes the players and their positions and their prayers, you're going to see a distinct contrast. So let's look first at the players. Two men, Jesus tells us, went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So player number one, Jesus simply identifies as a Pharisee. Pharisee. Now, we don't have Pharisees today. At least that position and that office and that name that operate. We have people who, who, who display the characteristics of the Pharisees, but we don't have actual Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious leaders. They were self-centered, self-righteous, pious, proud, and at the end of the day, utterly corrupt men. But they were looked up to by the population as the most religious and the most moral people in their culture. They were the religious leaders. They knew the Old Testament forward and backwards. They could quote it to you, and they joyfully did so. They knew it inside, and they knew it outside. 
They had been studying it forever, their entire lives, most of them. But what they had done is they had taken the Old Testament law that God had given, which was rather straightforward and simple, and they had expanded it and expounded upon it. They had taken God's original law and they had turned it into volume after volume after volume of man-made rules and regulations whereby people had to do certain things and avoid certain things in order to be right with God. They had taken God's simple law and expanded it into volumes of laws that defined for the people what righteousness looked like. They themselves were experts at keeping all of the laws that they had made up. And they were experts at pointing out to everybody else how they fell short of those laws. They loved to make a spectacle in public about their own righteousness. They loved to make a spectacle about how good they were at keeping all the laws so that it would never slip people's minds how religious and how spiritual they were. That's why Jesus addresses this multiple times. He addresses it in Matthew chapter 6, or exposes it, should I say, in verse 2, when he's talking about uh, what it means to give to the needy and then uh, what it means to pray. Listen to what he says to his followers. He says, so when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. He's talking about the Pharisees. He's saying if you really want to give to the needy and you really want to serve the Lord and love the Lord by giving to the poor, then do it in such a way that nobody really knows about it, only the Lord. Don't do it like the religious leaders do. They give to the needy, but they only do it out in public, and they make a big, huge spectacle about it so that everybody can see it. They don't really love the needy. They don't really care about the poor. They just want everybody to see how good they are and how compassionate they are. And he goes on to say, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, again, the Pharisees, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. When you pray, don't do it like that. Pray privately. You commune with God on your own because you love the Lord and you desire to to know Him and to walk with Him and to hear His voice and to be heard by Him because you love Him and trust Him with your cares and concerns. Not like the Pharisees, who love to pray out loud when everybody can see them. They don't really care about prayer. They don't really care about communing with God. They just want people to see them doing it. So such was the character of the Pharisees. They were, though, the religious elites of their society. The people who would have been in the crowd this day, would have, if you would have said Pharisee, they would have immediately looked, said, had a, a picture in their mind of the people that they looked up to to be the most committed, most spiritual men in all of Israel. So when Jesus says there are two men that go to the temple, there's a Pharisee immediately in the minds of those listening. They're thinking, oh, these are the religious elites, and they're going to go to the temple. He's going to tell us something about how they display what it means to be righteous and made right with God. They loved the law. They took the law very seriously. They just misunderstood the purpose of the law. So there's a Pharisee. And there's a second person, another player in the scene. It's a tax collector. Again, to his original audience, when he said a tax collector, that would have immediately conjured up a whole other set of images in the minds of those to whom he was speaking. They were the lowlifes of society. Everybody knew that the Pharisees were the the elites of society, and everybody knew that the tax collectors were the scum. They were the lowest of the low. Everybody hated the Pharisees. Everybody loved the Pharisees. Everybody hated the tax collectors. Now, the tax collectors were hated for a number of reasons. They were tax collectors, and who likes tax collectors at any time, at any point, in any age of history, right? April will come around again. For us, and we think about those things. But it was different in the first century. The tax collectors had all sorts of authority. And what these people were in the first century were this they were Jews who had purchased a tax collecting franchise from the Romans. And what they would do is they purchased the franchise and they could then go throughout their town or city or village and extract taxation from the population. 
but they had at their disposal armed guards. And so they could use whatever force was necessary to extract the taxation from the people. There was no 1-800 ombudsman that you could call to help out. And what was more, the tax collectors had a great reputation for doing this. Let's say the Romans had exacted a 10% tax. When the tax collectors showed up at your door and knocked with their armed guards, they would say, "Uh, you owe us 14%, and we'll have that now. Oh, you don't want to give it? Hey, guys, go get it. So not only were they people who had sold out to the Romans in the eyes of the populations, but they were people, their own people, who were now cheating them and stealing from them in order to get rich, in order to pad their own pockets at the end of a sword. So the tax collectors, that's who they were. It wasn't just that that's who they were and what they did that bothered everybody, that ticked everybody off, that made them be regarded as low lives. It was also the sort of the company they kept. Tax collectors didn't hang around with the religious elites. They hung around with all sorts of other scumbags. You know, prostitutes, thieves, adulterers, all those kinds of, you know, all those, all that riffraff. Oh, these people were, they were hated. They were despised. They were the the lowest of the low. They were, in fact, most likely the most hated people in all of Israel. The most defiled the furthest from God. And so what we have here, as Jesus introduces these two players in this parable, Jesus has introduced to us a remarkable contrast. He has told us from the very beginning that there are two people. And on the one hand, that he has introduced the most religious person that his audience could imagine. And on the other hand, he has introduced the worst sinner they could have possibly imagined. On the one hand, you've got the most righteous person the Jews could have ever imagined. On the other hand, the most unrighteous person. On the one hand, you've got the most moral person that his audience could have possibly imagined. And on the other hand, you've got the most immoral person that his audience could have imagined. If there was anybody who was a shoe in for the kingdom of God, it was the Pharisee. And if there was anybody who didn't have a shot in the world at the kingdom... It was the tax collector. And so Jesus paints a contrast. And he tells us something very simple about these two men. They went up to the temple to pray. They went up to the temple to pray. So you got the two people. They're heading up to the temple. Every day in the culture, you would go to the temple to pray. 9 a.m., 3 p.m., twice a day, you would go to the temple. And that was when the prayers took place. And so it was a common scene. It happened every day. And the crowds would go to the temple, and they would go there to pray. And there would be a sacrifice that would be offered on the altar, a blood sacrifice. As part of the temple ritual, it would be offered there on the altar. And the people would go, and the people would pray. So it was a common scene that Jesus paints. And these two men go to the temple to pray. So what happens when they get there? What happens when they get there? Well, Jesus tells us. They position themselves differently inside the temple. He tells us the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Or as the New American Standard says, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Now, it's an interesting contrast when we see what the Pharisee does when he goes in there. We're going to capture what he does and what he says. But what we get, at least at the very beginning here, is the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. So the idea is he's in the temple, he's standing up, he's praying out loud to himself, and as we're going to see, about himself. He only mentions God's name once. He mentions I four times, so that tells you who the prayer is about, right? What he's actually doing is parading himself in the temple, and it's likely he would have done this every day, something along these lines. He doesn't go there to ask for anything from God. He goes there to be seen and to make a spectacle of his own righteousness and his own worth. 
And it's very likely that this Pharisee, as he goes into the temple, would have positioned himself as near to the altar as possible. Because in the temple, symbolically, the presence of God was in the holiest place in the temple, in the center, and the altar was just outside of that. And the Pharisees would have almost always gone to the very front, as near to the altar as possible, because they viewed themselves as the most righteous and the closest to God as possible, spiritually, and they felt that they deserved to be the closest to Him positionally. And that's where this Pharisee would have been. He would have positioned himself right up at the front, near to the altar, nearest to God, and also as far away from other sinners as possible. Because after all, we wouldn't want to go to the temple and rub up against a sinner and be defiled. Oh no, we couldn't have that. And so this guy goes into the temple, he's up near the front, he's positioned himself in the front, he's standing up, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with standing up whatsoever. You can pray in whatever position you want, but the reason it's important is because when we see his posture, we we see him standing, his arms lifted, and he is looking up into heaven. It's as though he's at the front, he's as near to God as possible, his arms are lifted, his eyes are up, it's as though he's looking God straight in the eyes, as though he's the chosen one. As though God is just waiting in heaven to see his face and hear his voice. Because after all, he's so close to God. That must be the right place for him to be. But the tax collector, standing far off. Whereas the Pharisee positions himself at the very front, the tax collector goes where? Did you catch it? He's way off in the back of the room. He's as far away from that altar as you can get. The tax collector is probably in the very back of the room, also distanced from other people, because after all, nobody would say to the tax collector, hey, why don't you come sit by me in church this morning? Nobody wanted to be associated with this guy. He probably had no friends in the building. Everyone would have known who he was and what he did and the kind of company he kept. The fact that he was even in the building is striking. But he had enough sense about who he was to know where to go. And that was far away. Where the Pharisee is as close to the holy place as he can get because in his mind that's where he belongs. He's attained it. He's earned it. And he's deserved it. This man is far, far away. He knows he doesn't deserve to be in the presence of God. He knows what his life is like. He knows what his sin is like. And he knows he has no right to get anywhere near that altar. No right whatsoever to draw near to God. There's a humility about this man that keeps him in the back of the room. There's a sense of alienation, isn't there? I'm in the back of the room. I don't belong here. Nobody wants me here. I don't have any right to even get near to where God is. I'm going to be as far away and off the radar as possible text tells us he would not even look up to heaven. He wouldn't even look up. Now what's the Pharisee doing? He's standing at the front with his arms raised, doing what? Looking up to God. The Pharisee is in the back of the room and his eyes are down. Why won't he look up to God? Because he's overwhelmed with guilt. He knows himself. He knows what he does. He knows what he's like. And he is over, in the presence of a holy God, he is overwhelmed with guilt, with shame. He knows that he is a swindler. He knows that he is unrighteous. He knows that he is unworthy. He knows that he's corrupt. He knows that he's irreligious. He knows that he is a a lawbreaker. He knows it. He feels it. He believes it. And his very posture confesses it. There's not even a hint of attitude in this guy that would come out along the lines of, well, you know, I know I'm a, I'm a tax collector, I'm a pretty bad guy, but I've got to be better than the rest of the tax collectors. At least I'm at church. There's no sense of that. There's just shame and guilt, unworthiness, embarrassment. He feels the full weight of his alienation from God. He knows deeply that his sin has separated him from a righteous God. 
He knows that. He knows that God owes him nothing. He knows that God, that he deserves absolutely nothing from God. The only thing that he feels is the weight of his sin and the pain and the fear and the dread that comes with realizing that you are a sinner that is separated from God and all you deserve is his wrath and his punishment. His very posture tells us he captures all of that. If that isn't enough, uh, Jesus tells us he beats his chest. Now, nobody goes around beating their chest today, normally. But in those days, it was a, a common thing. And it was the way that you expressed the deepest and most extreme kind of sorrow. When you were overcome with sorrow, one of the ways that you showed it was just beating your chest. And that's what this tax collector is doing. He is in anguish over his guilt. He is absolutely broken in shame. He is crushed and he is humbled. He knows who God is and he knows who he is and he sees the gulf between the two and he knows he has no hope of crossing it on his own. We know that about him. Everything about his body language says that. But Jesus doesn't leave us just with body language. He tells us what these two men actually say in their prayers. The Pharisee, in verse 11, says this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Now that's a remarkable prayer, isn't it? Now we heard a man pray this morning. You heard too. Praise God, neither prayer sounded like that, right? Can you imagine if Jim had gotten up here this morning? <laughs> Dear God, I thank you that I am not like all the crappy people in the world around me. You don't like Roger back there. I thank you I'm not a piece of junk like that guy. That's what this guy does. It's remarkable. It's stunning. God, I thank you that I'm not like under other men. The first sentence out of his mouth in his prayer is, God, I thank you that I'm not like all the other sinners in the world. I thank you that I'm so much better than all these other people who are here. I thank you that I'm good enough to stand in the front of this room. I thank you that I'm good enough to look you in the face. I thank you that I am good enough to be right here in your temple. To be a, a, a good example for all these people of what it means to be righteous and holy and filled with virtue. And as if God needed some more information about exactly how good and righteous He is, He decides to get specific about it, doesn't He? He explains to God that He is moral. He's moral. And the way he does that is by contrast. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers. And he lists out all the people that he hates. All the people that he looks down to as lawbreakers, sinners, people who disregard the law, people who hate the law, people who break the law. Sinners, you know. The people he truly despises. The lowest of the low. And he lists them out. And he says, God, I thank you I'm not like those people. Those are all the kinds of sins associated with tax collectors, by the way. And as he's exalting himself and explaining to God how moral he is and how moral he is compared to everybody else, it's as though in midstream he notices the tax collector in the back of the room and decides, Lord, the Lord needs an illustration here. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like all these scumbags around here, like that guy in the back, that tax collector. That's pretty obnoxious, isn't it? He doesn't ask anything from God. He doesn't seek anything from God. He doesn't need anything from God. He just wants people to hear how truly moral he is. And then he explains to God, not only is he super moral, but he's also super religious. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Now again, he's, he's pulling in Old Testament law because in his mind, in his concept, the way to be right with God is to keep the law to keep the old covenant, to obey the rules. And so he pulls up two rules, the rule on fasting and the rule on tithing. 
Again, these are things that God had laid out, but that the, that the Pharisees or religious leaders had expanded multitudes beyond what God had intended. The Old Testament described one fast, or prescribed one fast. It was on the Day of Atonement. It's the only fast prescribed in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 31. There are no other required fasts. But you see, these guys weren't sufficient. They, they did, one fast wasn't sufficient. People would never know how religious you are if you only did that once a year. You need to do that pretty regular so people know that you're not the kind of guy that's just going to do it once, but you're going to go over the top with it. And so what these guys loved to do was they loved to fast. But they never did it privately, like the way they prayed and like the way they gave to the needy. They always did it publicly. So they would go out into a public place on the busiest times, the market days, like Mondays and Thursdays, and they would be out in the crowd and they would put ashes on their head and they would walk around looking hungry. So everybody would know, oh, there's the Pharisee. He's fasting. Look how hungry he looks and ashy. Pharisees reminding God that that's what he does. I I fast twice a week. I'm not going to do this just once a year. I'm so religious. I do it twice every week. 104 times a year. See how religious I am? And I give a tenth of all that I get. Again, tithing in the Old Testament. God had laid down some rules on tithing in the Old Testament. The word tithe means 10%. And tithing was the way that God had prescribed to fund the theocratic government of Israel. If you know anything about Old Testament Israel, you have a theocratic nation. That is a nation that is built around God as king. And so you have, to make it simple, the church and the state as one entity. That's difficult for us to understand because in modern-day America, that is not the kind of a nation we live in, right? The church and the state are not the same thing. The church exists, and then the government exists. In Old Testament Israel, it wasn't like that. Both organizations or both institutions were one and the same. And so God had prescribed uh, rules and regulations for how the theocratic government was to be funded. And so he had laid out some tithes. The people had to give three tithes every year. The first tithe was a 10% tithe that went to fund the, the national government, if you will, akin to taxation in our day. There was a second tithe that was a 10% tithe that went to fund particularly the national festivals and feasts that the nation celebrated every year. And so people gave a second tithe or a second 10% to fund all of that on a national level. And then there was a third tithe that was a 10% tithe that you gave every third year, and that was a tithe that was intended to provide for the needs of the poor. And so if you added it all up, and you were an Israelite in the first century, and in the Old Testament, the regulation was that you gave a a full 23% of your income, actually 23.5%, excuse me, 23.3% of your income every year to the government, to fund the government, to fund religious festivals, and to take care of the poor. And boy, did these Pharisees, they took it to the extreme. In Matthew 23, verse 23, listen to what Jesus says. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And Jesus is saying, look, you you people have lost your minds. They've taken tithing, they've taken their tithing so seriously that they, they get their spices, mint, dill, and cumin. I mean, these are teeny tiny little spices with teeny tiny little particles. And they would actually lay that stuff out and, and, and separate exactly the tithe amount of the teeny tiny little spices. That's how meticulous they were to keep the laws. That's what this Pharisee is saying in his prayer. I'm so religious, not only do I fast 104 times a year, but I even, I even tithe everything. Everything that I get, I tithe. They went way beyond what the law required to prove that they were religious, super religious, and everybody knew this. And here's the deal. The dominant religious idea in the first century, in the time of the Lord, And the dominant religious idea in our world are exactly the same. 
And that is this. Good people go to heaven. That if you're moral and you're religious, you get in. And if you're immoral and you're irreligious, you're kept out. That was the dominant religious idea in the first century. That was the, uh, the, 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 the mode out of which the Pharisees operated. If you're moral enough and you're religious enough, then you get in. And they went down those roads as far as a human being could possibly go. And it's the same predominant idea in our culture today. If you're just a good person and you do religious things, then you get into the kingdom. And in the first century and today, it is a bald-faced lie from Satan that would condemn a soul to hell. Yet it's what's, it's what's believed. If you're moral and religious enough, you achieve salvation. If you're moral and religious enough, you escape divine judgment. If you're moral and religious enough, you become acceptable to God. It's a matter of how good you are, how moral you are, how spiritual you are. And it's to such people that this story is directed like an arrow from the bow of the Lord. What about the tax collector? His prayer sounds altogether different. Lifted up his eyes to heaven, beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The American Standard says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Again, you can find more of a contrast. There's no pompous arrogance about how moral he is. There's no pompous arrogance about how religious he is. He understands that there is absolutely nothing inside of him, in his life, in his thoughts, in his attitudes, in his behavior that merits God's favor. He knows that if it's based on being moral and if it's based on being religious, that he has no shot in the world, none whatsoever. He knows that. We don't have time to to walk through it, but the actual language he uses here tells us that he understands that in the temple there's something going on up up there at the altar that builds around atonement. The idea that these sacrifices that are being being offered and the blood that's being shed somehow uh, appeases God's wrath on sin. He doesn't fully understand how that happens, but he understands at least enough to know that that's what's going on in the place, that what's being sacrificed is blood being shed in order to cover sin. He understands from a first century mindset that that was never an end to itself, but it always pointed to the ultimate Lamb of God, a Messiah who would come and shed His blood to cover over the sins of the nation. He doesn't fully understand how all that works, but he knows enough to know that there's something going on at that altar that might offer him something other than what he can offer himself. And so he says, in essence, God, have mercy on me. If it's up to being moral and being religious, I have no hope. But if there's something going on at that altar where blood is being shed that can be applied to sin, if there's some kind of mercy that flows out of that, that can flow all the way to the back of the room where I am, please, God, let it come to me. Let it come to me. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. I know who I am. I'm a broken, sinful, dark man who is not moral who is not religious. My only hope is that you would be merciful to somebody like me. That you would offer to me what I do not deserve on the merit of somebody else. Because that's my only hope. I have nothing inside of me to offer to you. I'm unworthy to stand near you. I'm unworthy to look up toward you. I'm in profound agony in my soul over my own sin and wretchedness. I need atonement to be applied to my life based on your grace and your mercy or I'm done. I am dead and I have no hope. Make atonement for me because I'm a sinner. Now, at this point in Jesus' story, everybody would have fully understood what's at play. And they would have been hanging on the edge of their seat to see how the story is going to resolve. 
because they know that man in the back of the room has no shot in the world. And they know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that that religious elite Pharisee who's in the front of the room, nearest to God, is in. And they can't wait to hear Jesus resolve that. Instead, Jesus blows them out of the water because he says this in verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. That's where the jaws would have dropped. That's where you would have heard the gasp in the audience. They had never heard anything like that. They could have never imagined anything like that. If you are, if you are born and raised inside of a religious system that teaches you from the time that you're born that the way to be made right with God is by being moral and being religious which was what Judaism taught, which was what the Old Covenant had become, you had no category in your mind for grace and mercy. And so when Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went home, justified, that means justified, that's legal language, declared not guilty. He stood before the judge of all the earth and was declared on the basis of his prayer, not guilty. And the other man, the Pharisee, the religious elite guy, went away unjustified. That is to say, he was declared guilty in his sin before the Lord. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see the difference between the two men? I want to bring this to a conclusion by giving you a few application truths that are truths about the gospel and how it is distinct from the Old Covenant, from the law in the Old Testament, if you will. And it's important that you understand these things because it's the only way to be saved and be justified before the Lord. The first is this. True repentance recognizes that we are sinners who deserve hell. Salvation comes to no human being apart from a recognition at the base that I am a sinner and I deserve hell. You see this in the contrast between the two men, right? You see this clearly from the tax collector in the back of the room. That is where he begins. He knows he is a sinner. He knows that he is an unrighteous man. And he knows that God is completely holy and perfect. And there is no way that he can cross that gulf in between the two. That his only hope is that something else would happen apart from that. But the gulf is too wide. His sin is too deep. And the only thing that he deserves from a righteous God is hell. He knows that. And that's the starting point for everything about this man. And it's the thing that's utterly missing from the Pharisee. This Pharisee is uber moral, at least in the outward ways and what he does. He's uber religious. I mean, the church doors aren't open without him going in and being at the front. But he has absolutely no sense that at his heart he is a wretched sinner and that even his best moral and religious works are so tainted by his own selfishness and arrogance that they're worthless before God. He has no sense that he's a sinner who deserves hell. He believes himself to be righteous and deserving of heaven. The second thing is this. We have to recognize that we can't earn our salvation by our good works. The tax collector knows this. He knows it. 
He knows how wretched he's been. He's honest about his life. He's got no rose-colored glasses that, you know, maybe I, can work my, maybe I can work my way out of this. Maybe if I just start going to church. Maybe if I stop hanging around the prostitutes. Maybe if I, if I just start extracting the actual tax instead of a little more than the tax. Maybe if I just start being a better person and being more moral and start doing more religious things, then I can cross the gulf and, and make myself acceptable to God. There is no sense of that in this man's life, is there? Do you see it? All he's got is, God, have mercy on me. That's my only hope. I got nothing. I can't do it. I have no chance. The Pharisee, on the other hand, oh no, he's fully convinced that he's already righteous enough and that he's already moral enough, that he has earned God's favor by his good works. He fully believes he deserves to waltz into the kingdom of heaven and have the best house on the block because of his good works and his religious nature. And then third, true repentance recognizes that God must do for us what we can't do for ourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says this, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's only one way for a man or a woman to be righteous before God. That is to die to himself, repent of his sin, and entrust herself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the only way we could ever be righteous enough to enter the kingdom of God is to enter in Christ and on on the account of his righteousness. Because he's the only one that's ever been perfect. You see, the standard of righteousness to get into the kingdom of God, you know what it is? It's not I have to be more righteous than the next guy. It is I have to be equal to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God said, be holy as I'm holy. The standard is perfection. Utter perfection. If we've got to earn our way in, the only standard that can get you in is complete perfection. Now I want to ask you this morning, look at your own life. Think about where you've come from. Think of the things you've said and think of the things that you've done before the Lord. He knows them all. Is there any chance that any one of us in the room can live to the standard of perfect righteousness. Has any one of us lived there? The answer to that question is no. We have not and we cannot. And you can be as moral as you want and you can be as religious as you want and you will never, you will never raise up to the level of perfect righteousness earned by your works. Never. It's impossible. The only way to be made righteous before God is to entrust yourself to Jesus who was perfect, who died, and whose sin makes atonement for yours so that He pays the price for what you've done and you are granted or imputed His perfect righteousness. So when you stand before God, it's not me standing before God saying, God, let me in the doors because I'm so moral and I'm so righteous. It's God, I'm a wretched sinner and I have no way in here except that I've entrusted my life to Jesus, Your perfect and holy Son, and it's on the count of His blood that I'm made righteous before You. You see that? The only way to get there is to repent of our sin and to entrust ourselves to Jesus, the Son of God, whose blood was shed for our sins. Finally, spiritual pride has a blinding effect on people, and it derails true repentance. This is a hard thing for people to grasp, especially church people, that being really moral and being really religious can stoke within our hearts a spiritual pride that actually blinds us to the gospel that's real. I am convinced that hell is populated by thousands upon thousands of people who compared to other people were very moral and who compared to other people were very religious. And yet we're utterly blind to their own depravity who never got to the place in their life where like, where they recognized there's no difference between me and that tax collector. I'm just as wretched as he is. And I'm just as lost as he is. And I'm just as incapable 
of working my way to God as He is. And in fact, the only hope that I have is that God would be merciful to me and do something for me that I can't do for myself by my morality and my religious works. That He would apply the blood of Jesus to my life and grant me mercy by His grace. That is the foundation of the gospel. That is the foundation of the new covenant. And it is displayed brilliantly in this tax collector. And it is contrasted dramatically with the Pharisee. And I suspect in this room that you can identify yourself with one or the other of these two men. Which one are you more like? Are you more like that tax collector or are you more like that Pharisee? Are, 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 you, are you counting on your morality and your going to church and doing religious things to get you into the kingdom? Don't. It won't. You'll walk away unjustified just like the Pharisee. But have you ever come to a, to a point in your life when you looked yourself in the mirror and you were really honest? You really understood. You know what? At the end of the day, I go to church and I try to be good. But I'm wretched. I'm utterly wretched. I mean, people look at me and they think I'm a pretty good person, maybe compared to my neighbor or compared to somebody else in my family or compared to some other awful sinner that I know. But at the end of the day, I know myself. And I know my thoughts. And I'm a pretty vile individual who has fallen short of the glory of God in thousands of ways. And if my getting in the kingdom of God is dependent upon me being good or me being religious, I'm toast. My only hope is that God would have mercy on me. That somebody else's blood would be shed to pay for my sins and applied to my life. That's, that's my only way in. I can't get there by myself. If you're here this morning and you've never come to that place in your life, you need to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. That is the only way to be made right with Him. Jesus says, I stand before you as the mercy of God in person. I've come that you might have life. I've come to die for you. I've come because I know you're wretched, and I know you have no hope. And I know you can't get there without me. And I'm going to give my life, I'm going to offer it up for you as the price for your sin. As an act of mercy toward you. Your response must be this. Just repent. Turn from your life of sinful pursuits and entrust yourself to me. Receive me into your life as your Lord, as your Master, as your Savior. Entrusting your eternal soul, not on your good works and not on your religious activities, but on my blood that's shed for you. If you've never done that this morning, Everything is riding on that. You have the opportunity right this moment to walk out of these doors, justified or unjustified. But the choice is yours. You must choose. I ask you if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord Jesus, you couldn't have given us a more vivid story. You couldn't have given us a more shocking story. It's still shocking. Because there's something within us that thinks that we're good. There's something within us that wants to think that we're all right. That everything's fine. That at the end of the that when our life is over, it's just going to all measure out. And you're going to have a big scale. And, and our good stuff is going to outweigh the bad stuff. And it's all going to be just fine. But there's never been a more clear word that's come out of your mouth than this parable. Which tells us we absolutely are not fine and will not be fine. Until we, like that tax collector, recognize our own wretchedness and cry out to you, Have mercy on me, God. Do for me what I can't do. Make atonement for my sins. Save me. I turn from my life of selfish ambition, and from here on out, I'm walking with you best I can. 
trusting in you because you're my only hope. Will you leave this morning justified or unjustified? The choice is yours. But you must choose. Choose Christ now. You may not have tomorrow. Jesus, help us today to see the Gospel. Help us to believe the Gospel. Help us to receive the Gospel. To abandon any pursuit of earning your favor by being religious or good. Let no one walk away from this place deceived about these matters, Lord, we pray. Draw them to yourself. Draw them to believe now for your glory.